You're listening to Blammo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. Yep, still here. What a week. And this week, I chat with Deborah Newberg, founder of the French brand De Bonfacture. Her story is a unique one. And while, yes, look, everyone is unique, Deborah's felt different. We chat through a ton of this, but her parents were teachers. And as you'll hear, they weren't that into her working in fashion. And she was only able to pursue fashion through a deal with her parents that she made later. And she goes on to then work at the epitome of luxury in fashion, Hermes and L'Oreal. Now, just as an aside, there's an interesting line I see here that Deborah goes from working at the equivalent of traditional luxury and works through many roles in the company and eventually starts her own company, which, in my opinion, is a direct response to the previous companies she worked at. Like, De Bonfacture is very different than Hermes, but it embodies what a luxury brand is today. And as you'll hear, luxury isn't about cost or who shouldn't have it. But for her, it's that everyone can. Luxury isn't how you treat your clients, but also how you honor your vendors and your supply chain. Right? Like, makes you think, doesn't it? Like, as I was re-listening to this episode before it aired, I was processing this and like my whole world kind of zoomed out from where I was sitting because I think we all view luxury as more about what you can't have and and you're wearing things that make you exclusive. And yes, there's a high quality for it, but it's way more than that. And just hearing her approach to De Bonfacture and also her outlook on the industry It's really refreshing, and it makes me so happy that there are many folks like her that are seeing this and are moving forward with their ideas. So enough of me chatting. We're going to jump right in. We talk about her life growing up in Paris, working at Hermes, and what luxury means today. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Well, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, It means a lot. I'm I'm a huge fan of De Bonfacture. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to talk definitely about Debon, but I also would love to hear kind of more about your story. And I know that some of this stuff you, you've said before, but just for kind of, you know, rehashing here for the pod. So you're from Paris? I was born in Paris and I grew okay. up in Paris. Yeah. So you're like Parisian through and through. I'm Parisian. I'm, I'm the real deal. <laughs> and like, you know... How did you get into clothes? Because, I mean, I, you know, you didn't just kind of wake up and start to bone, right? No. <laughs> um, but I've always been passionate about clothes. Um, fashion and clothes. So, I don't know. I think I, I started looking at um, catwalks when I was a little girl. Um, mm-hmm. Just like, you know, 90s, 80s, 90s stuff. like. Uh, Saint Laurent or Christian Lacroix. I was very obsessed by that. And then I would try to copy the dresses on my notebooks. And, you know, I was always kind of sketching stuff and, you know, fantasizing about being a designer. Yeah. Um, and then um, when I talked to my parents about my, my project to be a designer and go to Central St. Martin's, they weren't very excited about that. What sort of work were they doing? Um, teachers. So noble, noble. Yeah. Very noble. Very. Yeah. I mean, the highest, the best gift you can give anyone is teaching them. So I agree. Um, yeah, my, my mother is, uh, just retired. Um, 
she, she was a uh, biology and geology teacher. Mm-hmm. Like at a really, she was teaching high school, but um, at a very high level of, it's a French thing where you get like a really high degree in, in teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she was, a, she was an amazing, amazing teacher, um, you know, both in the content and in the, the way uh, her, her students, you know, loved her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How long did she teach? Uh, she taught from, I would say, the age of 24 to 30. Then she stopped to raise us. Uh, I, I was the, the first. Then I have two brothers, so she stopped for 10 years. Oh. And then she started again when she was probably like 40 and then until 65. So she was the, the dean of her, of her school at the end of her career. Whoa. Yeah, okay. and she she had a very yeah she got the the highest um, decorations possible that you can get in the French Academy for being a teacher, and she's That's she's awesome. Yeah, she's very passionate about geology, uh, notably, and you know she knows everything about mountains and stones and you know um, so many geological eras and all that. <laughs> Yeah, there's a bit of like chemistry that falls into people that get into geology, especially because of how, you know, the rocks evolve. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's really cool. Uh, and my father was actually a mathematics and statistics teacher, and he was very, very smart in mathematics, um, like everything very mathematical, yeah. Um, and he actually was involved in bridge um he was a bridge player. Bridge player? Yeah. Your your parents sound like comic book characters. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. And he he got into actually he got into coding way ahead of time. So mm. he always had these huge computers that was, you know, were the size of, you know, like a a, a furniture piece. Right. Um and he coded because he he invented a formula called the Newberg formula um, to compute uh, compute the result of bridge tournaments um, when they were held simultaneously in different locations. And he was known for that. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. The Newberg <laughs> formula is a method of adjusting match point scores achieved on boards, which have been played fewer times than other boards. Yo, this is like dope. Um, yeah. So he was really involved in that. He even taught me like when I was little, he would um, teach me to code on this really like old programming language called APL. Mm-hmm. And APL stands for a programming language. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually the, you know, the, the name of the language. So he was really into that. And then he got into like uh, act- actuaries and, you know, um, mathematics applied to finance. Okay. So, yeah. He was teaching that at the French university. Wow. <laughs> See, I'm a, I love asking people about like what their parents do because I feel like so much of where we as adults evolve to, uh, for better and for worse, right, is often a byproduct of how we were raised, right? Like, I'm sure being raised by you know two parents who are teachers, there is a value that's kind of placed on like self exploration, right? Uh self exploration. 
Well, I I wouldn't say that, that was exactly the case in my family. I would say. Oh no! Were, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon me. But that's fine. Um, no, they were really, um, especially my father, like very geared on you know, academical excellence. So uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So it was more like, you know, being, being um, ahead of ahead of you know whatever you were going to learn, you know, learning more learning ahead of ahead of time you know um but i yeah i guess it gave me a lot of appreciation for books like he was very respectful um with books mm. had like a very very um weird way of touching and um using books like in a very like it was a tre- like every book was a treasure so, okay see see this is what yeah. i'm talking about yeah <laughs> So, and then, yeah, learning ahead of the curve, I would say, something like that. So, you know, you're raised around two teachers and you're, you're into fashion and you're drawing and you're saying they were not as excited about it as you were. No. So how, how does this cultivate further here? Because you obviously do get to go to the school. I mean, did you just kind of, did you have to like make a case for you doing no, that? No, I didn't, I didn't manage to get there. I I had a packed with my father that like if i went to like this high level elite french kind of schools Mm -hmm. um after my studies i could do whatever i want and we had this conversation when i was 16 15 or 16 and i got out of that process when i was like 24 (laughs) you did it i did it And, and then and then where did you jump to after that and so while I was, so I went to business school and I was interning at all of these, you know, anything I could get my hands on that was related to fashion, I would intern there. Mm-hmm. And then I went to, I had this fantasy, I was going to learn, you know, uh, designing or, you know, do some kind of creative, um, you know, studies. But then I realized it would take so many more years and the business school was already really, really expensive. So I was like, okay, it's not realistic. And I'll just do a fashion management school, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started working in the industry. Where were you working? Um, I started at Hermes. Okay. So that's like saying like, oh, I'm going to get into, you know, making cars. I'll just go start at <laughs> Rolls Royce. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> how, how do you get to Hermes? Um, I'd actually interned there in my um, gap. It's not a gap year, but it's a year in the business school where you only do internships. You're not studying. So mm-hmm. I'd already interned uh, at Hermes in New York, uh, at Hermes of Paris, um, the, the U.S. subsidiary, mm-hmm. doing internal audit. Which What's was, that mean? Uh, internal audit is procedures of a company, like working on the procedures. Okay. So any procedure you need to follow in the company for anything. Um, anything, um, and also running inventories and stock adjustments. Ooh, now yeah. that is some sexy fashion work. Yeah. So that was really, <laughs> I think it taught me a lot of things, but it taught me like, okay, working is actually takes up your whole day. So if you're lucky enough to be doing something you actually like, you know, you should go for that. Like you shouldn't stay in something for nine hours a day, five days a week that you're not passionate about. So that 
that would, you know, it was a learning experience for me. So it sounds like more or less you weren't having the time of your life working. I wasn't. (laughs) I wasn't. I was like, oh no, I just got at work. I can't, I can't do this. And it was six months and I went through the six months, but it was really, really hard because I, but it taught me things. Mainly I was just under, um, you know, occupied, like they could have given me more stuff to do. I think I would have been happy to have more work mm. because I like to be busy. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, the finance and audit department wasn't really my, you know, my first calling. What is, I'm not asking you to reveal details, but like, what, what is a day? So you're like, it's like you're sitting at a desk and your you're email sort of desk. thing. Yeah. You're sitting at a desk with people from the finance department. Is it a nice desk? It was, it was okay. Okay. It was it's, very it's, it's not an Hermes desk. It's not some $80,000. No, 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 no. It's corporate. Okay. It's corporate. Ah, so ooh. you're there on, you know, 59th Street. Um, and yeah, you're just there writing procedures, doing stock adjustments. Then sometimes you go to the um, the warehouse to count inventory. Mm. And yeah, at the time, well, this, this is a very contra- controversial subject, but at the time, Hermes was still doing destructions, you know? They would burn. Uh, leftover stock that hadn't been, you know, sold twice at sale. Right. So right. there was also, you know, like putting aside inventory to go to destruction. That, uh, well, I mean, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore, or at least that I know about, right? Um, but like, it's interesting what experience at a company like that, even in in the position that you're in, teaches you about brand management. Mm-hmm. Like and the power of a brand and the the like the mystique of it all. Yeah, for sure. So when you're at Hermes and you're kind of like getting to have a you know better understanding of how the business stuff works, do you feel that this is starting to kind of like equip you more for jumping into your own thing? Or are you just not even there yet? At that time, no, not at all. I was just you know trying to get through my internship and you know understanding you know what my job was about and trying to figure out what is it, you know, I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, then I went, I, I had an internship in, in L'Oréal. Um, mm-hmm. at the, it was a department. They were, they were actually selling, um, how do you say that? Um, the stuff you use to dye your hair, hair dyes. Yeah. Hair dye. Yeah. To, um, hairdressers. Okay. So it was the professional division of L'Oréal. It was like the B2B sort of sales thing. B2B yeah. uh, hair dyes for hair salons and all that, which is a huge business. Um, and I was working there because they had in their marketing department, they had this weird person that I found extremely interesting who was running the trend and perspective. It, it was just like a person at the last floor on a desk doing trends and perspective and, you know, creative work and you know working on on trends and whatever forward thinking stuff so i really right. wanted to work with her i really got along with her and i really really wanted to work with her that's and that's so a big that's a big job for a lot of those companies because obviously it affects how they spend you know millions and millions of dollars in advertising well i would say she was unjustly um i mean she she was a very interesting um you know part of the company i think she left L'Oréal now but her, mm-hmm. her role was, I think, way smaller than it could have been because the marketing department was more preoccupied with like product development and operational marketing. 
mm. I'm less into like taking in her ideas because she was seen as a weird person, you know, like someone who's not in the, she wasn't in, in the, um, how do you say in the mold? Can you say that in English? Yeah. Like, like didn't, didn't fit the mold. That, that's didn't a, fit the that's mold. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No. Damn. So I was working with her and with someone else from marketing doing product development and it was funny. Yeah. So did that um, more on the product side. And then I worked with an entrepreneur uh, when I was doing my last year in entrepreneurship um, who was doing a cosmetics company. And it was a tiny company like with her, the director of, of, the, the, of makeup and me as the intern. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I had to launch their e-commerce in 2007, which was a huge it was a huge operation. So you're you're getting this whole sort of experience. I'm getting all this experience in fashion in different different zones, like working in a shop. Then when I was 21, then um, working in the back office of a little designer, um, doing like all kinds of stuff in mm-hmm. Paris. Like she had her her atelier in her building, and then you know like working for all these jobs. I told you. And then when I did the fashion management school, I'd done like close to two years of internship. And they're like, I meet Hermes and they're like, um, so we're here to find interns. And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to be an intern. I'm looking for a job. And they're right. like, oh, okay. Because we're supposed to do an internship um, after, after our, our studies. And I was just like, I just don't want one more internship. So I somehow convinced them I need a job. And they had a maternity leave replacement to do um, for someone who was expecting twins. So she was off for a year um, and I replaced her for a year doing product development at the silk accessories department. Wow. And it's interesting because I imagine in hindsight now, if you look at this, you, you could not have had a better training and education because obviously you didn't work at... You know, you didn't work at kind of like no name sort of companies. You work at like, you know, two of the most recognizable and like best companies in their field, but also getting like a full 360 experience of everything that relates to fashion. Because I I feel like a lot of people who will fall into fashion, sometimes they will be, oh, I'm just like, I just do creative. I can make stuff and that's it. And other people get into fashion and they, you know, see themselves as like some Arno Jr. and they just, all they think about are the finances and the marketing and the storytelling, but no product. And so you're getting a taste of every aspect of that Yeah, in I all these jobs. Yeah. I was, yeah, I went in, in, well, when I think about it now, but I didn't realize I, I, I did see different things from like, you know, the finance and audit and being in a tiny company, being in a giant corporation, um, doing marketing, doing product development, working with creative. Yeah. It, it was, it was really interesting. Yeah. So then how does, I mean, Debon kind of pop up? So I finished my maternity leave replacement and then, you know, people at Hermes are like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do in our, in our company? And I'm like, well, it, I would love to have more initiative because I'm kind of more, you know, more motivated when I have my mm-hmm. own projects and, you know, the organization at Hermes is very like, a hierarchical and I wanted to have more agency and they were like oh well you shouldn't stay in luxury because it's gonna take you a really long time to have any kind of you know um 
kind of agency on your own projects if you stay with us. Mm. And you should go to a more middle wage company and then come back, you know, because you'll have more freedom there. And you should come back in a few years to a luxury company like us that works more like. Because all of the like more senior managers at Hermes were actually coming at that time from LVMH. Not anymore, of course, for what yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the time, and L'Oréal and all these big companies and, you know, even like big retail chains, and they were hiring these people to like be managers. So I was like, oh, well, if I'm starting as a product manager at a young age and in five years time, I'll still be a product manager. And then my boss will be my age and come from one of these huge companies. And, you know, that's not who I want to be or what I want to do. That's a, I feel like a, a more common problem, especially with like our current generation of employers. Right. And like, you can't really be promoted. You have to either get a better job offer somewhere else. And then they'll be like, okay, fine. We'll pay you what you're worth. Or you have to leave, go work there for a small amount of time, and then you can come back yeah. at an elevated role. Yeah. And I, I'm sure it makes sense to some of these folks, but like from my perspective, it just seems dumb. Like it's like you, it's so much, you know, it's such a better idea to just cultivate your own and promote them. But I mean, well, what do I know? <laughs> I guess, you know, they, they had a, a specific policy at HR and I, I saw all the new people come in and I was just like, they're not coming from, you know, from the actual operational people in there. Right. So I was like, okay, I need to leave. I need to trust them because I had this really open conversation with that HR person. And because my new boss at Hermes came from a big French underwear retail chain that was very middle range. Okay. Um, I was like, maybe I should meet those guys. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a forum at my fashion management school where a lot of companies came and they had a booth and I was like, oh, hi, like, I'd like to meet you. Then started talking to someone and somehow I got a job offer to move to China. Whoa. For them. Yeah. And you was, did it. I did it because I just broken up with my ex-boyfriend. Okay. And I couldn't see my life, you know, kind of like very, oh my God, it's over. How can Been I there. Paris be the same without him? I can't stay here. I need to get out of here. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I need to leave like very dramatic. I'll go to China and try to see job. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a little bit different than living in Paris. Yeah. That was really, really different. Were you in mainland China or were you in Hong yeah. Kong? I was in uh, Shanghai. Oh, damn. And, and traveling to mainland, traveling to, to factories in mainland and a little mm -hmm. bit in Hong Kong, maybe twice. What was that like? Because that's a very different understanding of luxury, of manufacturing, of, I mean, you name it. Yeah. So that was, I was happy at Hermes, except for the, you know, like agency part, but it was super young. So it was like a lot sure. to ask for at the time, but um but in that company i you know had less it was difficult for me to identify with the work i was doing for this mm -hmm. kind of product um and but it taught me so much in hindsight i realized because i went to so many factories saw so many things did a lot of product development i was traveling between paris and shanghai and all these factories and you know like what the um you know, the designers were doing in the headquarters and, you know, the actual, you know, fabric sourcing and factory sourcing and, you know, choosing the colors and being on really complicated products like underwear, doing all the colors for all of the different 
lab dips and like technical stuff um, and working with a Chinese team in the sourcing office mm. and understanding like everything that was not everything. I didn't understand everything that was going on. That was the illusion that I had okay. when I joined the company. They were like, yeah, you're going to supervise this and this. And then I get there and I'm like 26 and, you know, the Chinese team boss has like 12 years experience in underwear and lingerie and nightwear and they're Chinese. And, you know, there's only so much I can actually do. Sure. Um, but, you know, when I was hired, they were like, they're going to do this and this and this. And then when I got there, I was like, oh, I can only do this, but not this and this and this. Um, but it taught me so many things and yeah, shaped a lot of my views about manufacturing and craftsmanship that I'd already kind of been trained for at Hermes, um, but like in a very, very different way. Wow. And then, and then do you pop over to Debon now? Like, because yeah, I, I, I thought you just went Hermes Debon. No, no, no. I went to that job and I quit it. I was very, very, like at the end, I was extremely unhappy and depressed. And my, my colleague, uh -oh. um, my Chinese colleague was like, we love you so much. Please don't stay here. Like you need to leave. You're depressed. You're not. <laughs> You're not this yourself. is a recurring theme I'm starting to hear. So Hermes is like, yeah, you should probably leave. And I go to this other voice like, yeah, you're not happy. You should leave. <laughs> I think like I, I'm probably very honest, you know? Okay. Sure. And so when people get to know me, they're like, yeah, maybe you should do something else. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's so lovely to meet you. You're awesome. Uh, why don't you just head out of here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm very honest. But it's helped me find my path, I guess. Um, I mean, surely you're on the right one now. Good well, Lord. thank you. I hope, you know, it'll continue. But thanks. Um, yeah, so I, I quit that job and then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm tired. Like, I'm going to start my own thing and see where it takes me. Yeah, so here's the thing about, like, the bone. So for me, I, when I first saw it, I was like, okay. And now all these things are... are or not derogatory or whatever. So let me just hear me. I was like, okay, it's kind of like APC. It's it's got this sort of like, you know, no unbranded, like kind of cool guy, very relaxed. The silhouettes seem good. And actually, Greg Lelouch at No Man Walks Alone was like, oh man, you have, you have to try him. And but when I was looking at, it, I was like, oh, this is very much like two years ahead, you know, in my mind because I'm looking at him like, yeah, like at least the guys that I know in New York and everyone else, like most of these people are just dressing themselves according to somebody's Instagram post. Right. But mm -hmm. no one was kind of trying to speak the elevated language that you were speaking. And I mean, Greg you gets think it. So? Yeah. Oh my. Oh yeah. No, no, no. But this is hear me, hear me out on this. Okay. And I look at this and I'm like, I was like, what is, I mean, I was like, it's beautiful. It's like the, the color palette, the scheme. And then I actually got, one of the pieces. Oh, what did and you I get? And I was like, I got the easy pants, the corduroy easy pants. Cool. And oh, I was yeah, like, right. You have them in every color. Yeah. I do have them <laughs> in every color. That. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. I was like, these, they're like perfection. And Thanks. I, I didn't, it was something that like, I truly couldn't appreciate and understand until I felt it. And, and then, you know, and then for me, just like anyone else, like you just, you know, go as deep as you can trying to understand more. And then I'm reading more about, you know, that you're making things in Paris and your commitment to sustainability and your manufacturing convictions and all these sorts of things. And I have basically just 
you know, been like your biggest ambassador here to all my friends. I'm like, Thank Oh, you. You, you, got, you got to go wear it. <laughs> and you know, and it's funny cause I just explained it to them and they're like, well, what's the brand? And I was like, well, imagine like APC, but it never got bad. And the manufacturing is like really good. And it's like perfectly French, but it also fits in everywhere else. And they were like, Oh, okay. Dope. I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, crazy. Well, thank no, you. No, yeah. It's it's excellent. And, you know, especially now from hearing your a bit more about your journey, all of these things make more sense because like just just even like the styling alone, it's it's very subtle. But like, I don't know. I'm just kind of hoping you don't get bought by Hermes or LVMH in like the next year or so. Like I wish you tons of success, but I just it's like, it's perfectly small and, you know, and great. Thank you. Well, we need more people definitely to support us and, and buy, buy our stuff um, to, to ensure that we won't get bought over, I guess. <laughs> we, need, well, we need, yeah, to get the word out. How did some of this stuff, I mean, because obviously you launched the brand and, and, and it's like any good brand, I, I, it, it's a bit of a slow burn, right? Like It is. Uh, what was like the the process of launching it all? Because it was it was a small collection, right? Yeah, it was tiny. Uh, when I launched it, I went to a few makers uh, around, you know, in French regions, and I initially I wanted it to be some kind of label that would just, you know, source the best, you know, uh, kind of factory made uh, clothing mm-hmm. from the own factories, from the factories themselves. Then I realized because in China. And elsewhere, some factories have their own collection or Mm. they have their like factory products. But then when I met some of these factories, they didn't have their product. They were just makers, like sewers or knitters. And so I managed to find a few pieces, but um, they were like the fit wasn't what I imagined. And I had other ideas and stuff like that. And then so I started with um, a a Brittany knitter. with people in the southwest who were doing knitted ties on mm-hmm. uh, actual sock um knitting machines um and i did um a belt with a maker from the center who was doing small leather goods and um you know leather goods for very very big french uh, luxury houses um but they had their own collection of kind of like heritage um belt and um and that was it and then i realized you know if i want to make this a wardrobe which i imagined it as a wardrobe i want to make shirts and i want to make trousers and i kind of knew what i was looking for and it just you know started to be um obvious that i should be designing those and you know finding the fabric and finding a pattern maker and you know making it making them at the atelier and this is how it started, like with the co-branding and the, you know, having the tag of the manufacturer and the tag of the maker. Yeah, because I feel like that is, you know, again, like, you know, earlier when I was talking, like you're definitely ahead of where all these other brands are trying to go. And I think one of the one of those things for sure is the transparency of manufacturing. Yeah, um, I know. I know that story MFG, which is like the British. Yeah, company, they're amazing. Yeah, they, they you know, they, for a while, they were trying to tell everyone where all their stuff was made until things got a little bit weird where like people were showing up at the other man- factory's doors. But like, like I feel like that's such, especially now where people are just used to being advertised to at an almost obscene amount. 
that people are craving truth and authenticity more than ever. So just being like, yeah, they're, they're made here and this is where we're getting our fabric. I mean, every single piece, you know, at least that I see on your site, you're like the fabrics from here and it's made here. Mm-hmm. Like that's in, in, in generally, look, coming from Hermes, right? Like that's, that's taboo. You don't do that. No. <laughs> so don't. like what, what can, what, you know, convicted you to, to continue to lead with this? I mean, I know you were saying about some of the Chinese manufacturing, but. Oh, yeah. I was like, no, because at Hermes, um, you know, when I was working there, we're working with amazing makers and like small family owned makers. And I was, I had this really strong urge to, you know, get them better known or kind of advertise them and Mm -hmm. not only the brand. Like I really saw it as a partnership. And then when I was in China, I was just like, oh, well, if we, you know, keep really vague tags like made in France or made in China. And, you know, sometimes made in China is better than made in France. Mm-hmm. Depends. But if we, we're not, we don't actually say um, where it's made by, who it's, you know, who makes it. Well, the made by instead of the made in, we're not at the right, you know, um, we need to be at this level of the maker. And mm-hmm. because these makers have stories, like they have craftsmanship, um, a lot of times, or in some that you can find at least they've passed their craftsmanship from generation to generation. Like these stories need to be told. This needs to be told so that we can, you know, kind of get this industry running on these premises again and stop like outsourcing stuff where it's not like, it doesn't matter where it's made, who makes it. We just want to make this style and, you know, like make it there, make it there. Doesn't make a difference. Like culture of craftsmanship doesn't make a difference. It's just like basically minute minutes and, cost you know the time it takes and the equation so i think i i felt like um this was a bit soulless um Mm. i think there's there's culture in craft and um you know anything like any goods or um anything that's made has like comes from a material and you know the conditions of the emergence of this material and where it's grown and how it's cultivated or how it's transformed and then who makes it and who shapes it like actually gives some kind of I know this sounds like really weird but like some kind of soul to the uh, finished product and uh, this is something we have in artisanry and this is also something we have in like small um you know uh, small scale manufacturing but in general in the fashion industry like this is not part of the way people will think about about things so i i had this urge to to do that because i just thought it was a good project yeah i mean it's it's beautiful uh, i this wasn't a ted talk but i was listening uh, or like reading this article where um it was this french guy and he was talking about how big brands have like slowly took over uh early independent manufacturing and he traces a lot of it back to um, you know, the 1700s when there was a ton of importation coming, you had the, you know, the colonies at the time, uh, the English colonies that were buying just a ton of French goods, you know, like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, those guys would only want to buy things made in Paris, made in France. And mm-hmm. at the time, you know, the stuff that they were buying, they didn't know exactly who they were buying from. You would just buy from like a department store. You would buy from basically a merchant. And then the merchant, in order to identify their stuff, would just slap their name on it. And over time, 
you know, and, you know, fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, he talks about how that instilled a, um, a desire to buy from merchants over craftsmen. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I mean, cause he talks about, you know, you know, of course there's some examples of like Revere Ware and Paul Revere and stuff like that, or Wedgwood and, but the things that were coming over, they were trying to find a way to make sure that the value matched what they were trying to sell. And so they would just put their name on it. But obviously over time, you know, I mean, that, that the brand name becomes maybe too valuable. I mean, look at Hermes, right? Like there are things where it's like, oh, I know this company makes Hermes of this or this, you know, and you'll want to get that and it's way cheaper. But people still care about the one that says Hermes on it because that that brand means something, you know? Yeah, but also with Hermes, the thing is the brand also means product because you're getting a high level of excellency in right. the product. So it's not like a, an empty shell. Like yeah. a lot of brands that are kind of like the, 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 the int- intrinsic value of the product is sucked out of the product to make better money and like push the brand. And I think what Elmes does is, you know, respect the product and you're getting, of course, it's a brand and it's a luxury brand. And so it's, if an artisan made it, you'd probably get it for cheaper with the same materials, et cetera. But it, there, there, I think there is still a form of correlation between intrinsic value and what you're getting at Hermes, even though there's, you know, of course the brand value and the luxury brand value, but they, they have respect for product and product excellency. And this is what I learned there. Yeah, for sure. And I, I to be honest, like Hermes is probably one of the, the last ones that actually still connects for a lot of people. But I mean, you know, r- reading in some of these like business classes of, you know, brands and marketing, their big angle is you get the customer to pay for their own marketing. And so you do that by spending a ton on the marketing, making the brand as valuable as possible, then having much larger margins, which obviously cover the marketing. And so like, that's like, I mean, to be honest, you look at Arnaud, like that's their, that's the LVMH mindset and how they've been able to do such a good job off of, you know, things like champagne and, and, and look, it works. Like I'm not, I don't think it's evil or wrong, but I think what you're trying to do, which is very you know, radically different than that in terms of trying to showcase the craftsmanship first, I think it will last longer, especially with the generation of people that are coming around now who are just fed up with bad advertising and things that feel inauthentic and awkward celebrity endorsements where they, you know, wear it for the picture and then immediately go back to what they had before. I mean, it's just kind of, gross and like with what you're doing by also making good clothes i think is is definitely changing how people think about purchasing from a brand and making people want to ask that much from the other brands they're purchasing from yeah i think we really need to create new standards in what is communicated from the brands to consumers and i think it's really a collective process like i'm not doing it to say like oh look at i'm doing this and others are not doing it um, even if it was a little ahead of curve and people thought I was crazy for wanting to do this, but I really believe it should be a standard, um, yeah. that, you know, like everyone embraces, you know, in the industry. Yeah. And I mean, as, as this is kind of like happening, the other thing that you're doing too is like, and correct me if I'm wrong, your clothes are somewhat, they're genderless, correct? Mm, yes, I hope so. They're like mask 
masculine inspired, but they can be worn by anyone. But I, I think that's the case for any kind of clothing actually, but yeah. Well, true. I mean, that, that it's always been kind of the, a woman can wear men's clothes, men can wear women's clothes, but on your site too. I mean, there's no, you know, homes, femmes, right? Like there's, there's no men's women's, it's just the clothes. And then obviously in your lookbooks, you're showing men wearing the clothes, you're showing women wearing the clothes you're showing. I mean, you know, and now we're kind of moving past gender entirely. So it's, it's just, you know, again, this is like, you're kind of still like just a little bit ahead of everyone else here on this. Um, because that's got to also be easier in terms of just how you're making stuff, right? Um, in what way? Well, in, in the sense that like your silhouettes are like very free and easy and flowing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's just because I really believe in comfort. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Um, it's just the specific style that I, I guess is kind of French or Parisian is pretty unisex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, how has basically like developing your, uh, like future collections have been? Because I mean, the first collection, you know, it looks like every single one has been getting bigger and bigger, but you're also not, you know, uh, retiring things like the, the, the grandpa jacket, like that's like, people just wait for that. Like that's every, you know, that that's not going away. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, it's like, there's, we build up on you know, on, on each, you know, kind of clothing that we do, we build up on, you know, some pieces that are kind of essential for the, because I've always seen it as a wardrobe and not as a fashion brand that has to change like every season. So it's basically like elaborating on existing styles and adding a few new styles. It's not a very like um, trend based or it doesn't change, I guess, with the same Oh, speed as other collections, I would say. Some of the stuff that you've been you've been doing in terms of like your concept of sustainability, I feel like has a much higher standard than what most people do for sustainability now, including animal welfare. Could you kind of explain a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So um, I started the brand with the idea that. Um, the, the the very important thing was this made by concept and mm-hmm. to use only natural fabrics and to use, you know, to design uh, clothing as, you know, you would design a more lasting piece than a fashion piece, you know, and that's why it's called the bonne facture. It means like something that's well-made um, mm-hmm. and kind of enduring, you know, because it's well-made and more like designing furniture or, you know, something like that than designing, um, you know, clothing that's like made for a season. Mm -hmm. So it was those principles of like design, natural fabrics and transparency on local manufacturing. doesn't need to be French, but, you know, to have transparency and a local form of craftsmanship. Um, And then I saw, so I, I've always been a feminist, but I've kind of, you know, like went really deeper into it. Um, can't really retrace exactly. Well, there was different steps, mm-hmm. but I think like it was a mixture of so getting into that and, you know, um, so this is a little difficult to explain, but, um, so I saw this documentary about the milk industry. Okay. So how do we, you know, produce industrial milk? For milk to be produced in industrial quantities, 
we need cows to be constantly pregnant and having just given birth. So they produce milk like any mammal. So I just like get into this documentary where I see like large scale, um, you know, like cow, how do you say, like, like a factory producing yeah. milk with cows. Yeah. And they explain that they actually like, they can't always, you know, sell the babies to um, agriculturists that either raise them to make another a new cow to make milk or like kill them to for meat. So sometimes they just kill them. Oh, geez. Yeah. They just like produce, you know, beings to just kill them to produce milk so that milk is produced that will not serve, you know, the baby, but that will serve like whatever we're trying to make out of the product the mother is making. And like suddenly this just, I don't know why this documentary in particular, but I was so shocked. I was, I was so shocked. I'm like, you know, living things are not um, products and we can't like kill the, you know, um, children or, you know, offspring of animals just because we want to make a, an industrial product out of like something from their bodies. Like it just seemed totally wrong. Yeah. And in all that process, like the farmers were, well, that are not really farmers, I guess, but more like, um, you know, factory owners while well, are doing milk like they would do, you know, um, appliances, um, are inseminating the cows by hand. Like they, they're not in actual touch with um, a male, I don't know what the word is uh, in English, but they're not, not in touch with a male. So it's uh, ac the actual human that is like inseminating all those cows and they're like really using these cows like, like a machine. Right. There's no spirituality. There's no like, um, you know, letting nature do its ways. Sure. Um, like it's really gotten to a really, really, um, you know, disquieting, very, you know, uh, very um, terrible level. Yeah, it sounds like this severely affected you, which I mean, honestly, as you're telling me, I'm uh, very uncomfortable. It, really, it. it's very uncomfortable. But yeah. like, I never realized that before. And so I started like getting into that and being like, oh, well, this is really connected to feminism and like the women's bodies and like the way women's bodies are treated and like objectification of the living and all this. And I don't know like why somehow I made the connection with sheep and the way sheep are farmed and then i started learning sheep are farmed for their meat but also for their wool of course mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and just like trying to have uh um thinking about um the raw materials that we use in fashion and you know where do they come from like how are the animals or the plants treated or the soils treated and you know um or all of the synthetic stuff like how is it you know extracted from you yeah. know petrol or you know extracted and transformed and you know using which chemicals and which processes and i just like suddenly just like having this idea in my head that like we need you know my 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 path is to be using natural fabrics i was pretty right. sure about that 
then it started to be like, oh, I need to use natural fabrics, but I need to know, you know, where they come from and how they like were cruelty raised. free. I'm air quoting like, that word, right? Kind of cruelty free, but because I, when I was researching those issues with sheep, like making the connections from cows to sheep, I started learning about uh, a practice that uh, routinely is done in Australia in the merino wool um, raising called mulesing. And it's an, a cruelty practice where they actually like uh, um, tear out the skin um, around the genitals of the sheep so that a parasite won't, um, you know, invade the sheep's uh, skin and deteriorate the quality of the wool. And they mm. do that with no anesthesia. And it's just like they're tearing out, you know, skin and leaving it exposed to um, this car by itself Ugh. it's Jesus. really disgusting it's really really disgusting and so i was like then i started like getting all those thinkings about like how why do why is there this large scale manu, ma manufacturing or i started like thinking well it's like a plantation of sheep yeah it's like a colonial um a colonial way of you know invading a territory appropriating a territory in a very large scale with a lot of you know power and then like making a you know kind of like this you know monoculture like you know is done in many former or was done in colonies or still done in former colonies um to just like feed in the needs of you know the markets from the colonizers and i just like starting started to see it that way and then i couldn't go back from seeing it that way, even though I still use some uh, Australian merino wool, um, and not all of the wool we use is milling free, but I'm very aware. Well, the maximum wool we use is milling free, and I'm very aware about that. And I think like we should talk more about it because it's so hard to find merino wool that's not from Australia and not milling free mm. and milling free. Sorry, that like if we don't build awareness about that, like the whole system is going to continue, you know, like not making that an issue. And I just think it's an interesting way to think about, you know, it's just interesting to like retrace the 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 origins of the fibers and and everything. And and then I started getting involved in this project in France that um, is called Tricolor, and um, actually is about revalorizing the local wool industry from mm. kind of like local sheep that are not. Like some of them are merino. Um, actually, the merino species is from North Africa and was, um, you know, brought to Spain through the, 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 the history of, you know, uh, Spain and North Africa and like all of the, you know, like historical empires that were there. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's kind of like, never indigenous to Australia to have merino sheep there in any case. So I started getting interested in merino sheep and found some in the south of France that are more rustic than the ones who are, um, you know, are raised in, in Australia because in Australia they have like so many generations of breeding to get like a specific, you know, um, fineness of fiber. And I started wanting to work with these wolves and getting involved in these projects of like working with local materials and some materials like some of these sheep's uh, wools that were actually burned after, you know, they were, the, the sheeps were 
cheered. Is that the word cheered? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. because it was cheaper to destroy it than it was to actually valorize it because, you know, the, all of the, the industry wasn't there anymore to like spin it and use it for, you know, whatever plants. Like the best it was used for was to isolate some uh, tubes of, you know, like using wool for isolation. Oh. So it was really like... Oh, insulation. Insulation, sorry. Yeah. No, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, yeah, it was... It took me years to get to that point where I'm kind of, you know, trying to explain to you something in a rational way. But I don't know why, like, the more I got into all these subjects, the more I thought it was important to work with those wools and some linens also from the north of France, where uh, during COVID, I visited some um, linen cultivators and linen sketchers um and i started you know like getting into that thinking kind of thinking even though like it's like a tiny part of my collection but All i right. just thought like okay this is what radical clothing could mean is like getting to the root of clothing and trying to find materials close to you and what was the culture of producing materials to clothe people outside of colonies it's a mm. question. It's a real question because before we didn't have cotton in France, before France colonized India and England colonized India, there was linen and wool, maybe leather um, and hemp, probably, but or silk that was imported from China, but like there was, or that, were, that was from like the commerce routes that were yeah. more like exchanges of merchants, but the industrialized cotton fabrics that we have um, also come from that period you were uh, talking about from the 18th century and like the industrial revolutions and all the textile revolution that kind of made large scale um, manufacturing available. And also um, with the colonization of, you know, uh, countries or places that had local materials like cotton, um, you know, like made these fabrics more like daily to us, but they're not actually from where we are. Um, in the US, there is cotton. There is a very bad history connected to US cotton because it's very connected to slavery. But mm -hmm. um, there's Pima cotton in, uh, I think, uh, New Mexico and south of California uh, that is actually from a native tribe called the Pima tribe. And so this, I, I learned this from trying to understand like where stuff came from. And I realized that like when, uh, the colonizers came to, uh, colonize the U.S., they found out that this local tribe had, uh, found a, a, a very like, uh, ingenious way of, um, irrigating, uh, the, the soils, uh, so that they could actually cultivate cotton in very, um, how do you say arid? Can you say arid? arid yeah, land. arid. Yeah, arid, arid environment. Um, and so they asked them to. I think like the the Pima tribe like gave them that knowledge, and then like uh, the the colonizers, um, you know, like uh, you know, took uh, this me method of cultivation and you know uh, continued to well, industrialize and make a, a business out of that way of uh, cultivating cotton. So cotton is a more native uh, 
material to the U.S. Um, even though I don't really know if like initially like how it was grown, but I know it was grown by the Pima tribe, for example. Yeah, it's just stuff like that. I I think we should all get into. I mean, not people who have time. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's funny. This kind of goes back to our earlier conversation when, you know, I was talking about like the sort of mindset and product that you get from, you know, your parents or teachers. And it sounds like your your hunger and thirst for knowledge and uh, search for like the history behind things has really helped set you apart from a lot of other designers. I mean, I think the biggest thing that's happened from clothing brands, maybe in the past five to 10 years is I think all brands, but definitely clothing brands are being asked to do more. And um, when I say more, I mean, I need my clothing to align for with my beliefs in more than just how I want to look. And I think that's something that like you've really embraced with your, with Debone as a whole and not just educating consumers and not just trying to find ways to be transparent about your production, but also in trying to, um, use your clothes to what, you know, other people tell stories. I mean, geez, your, your front page of, um, Sukena, is that, is that how you pronounce it? I mean, you know, yeah. So you know, on, on clothing and being non-binary, I mean, shit, like that's, that's great. And when you look at that, like, this is fine, but like, why is it coming from a company that sells me pants? And it's like, it's good because now again, like, I think many of us want the brands that we purchase from to align more with what we believe and what we stand for. And Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because there are other brands who are kind of trying to do this and they're just doing it late and falling on their face. Well, maybe, maybe (laughs) like for me, all of this really, I mean, it's really who I am and it's really, you know, really touches on really personal um, beliefs and, and thinking. And it's, I'm not doing it because it's, you know, cool or uh, to be on that bandwagon, bandwagon or wagon. Wagon. Um, Wagon. Uh, I'm not really like Sukaina is my friend. We're, we connected on that. I thought it would be interesting for them to talk about that. They want to talk about that. I'm actually thinking about all those things, and I've been for a few years, um, and about gender and all that, and been very, very, very invested in the feminist movement in Paris and you know, like feminist groups, especially after Me Too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've gotten really, really deep in all those things. Now I've, I've really had to like move a little bit away from it because it was very militant and like there's a lot of anger there. And, and there's also my own anger and all, mm. all that. I mean, patriarchy, all that. Sure. Um, so I think like for me, the way, the way is through creation and through communication and through you know, like education. Um, well, I mean, you're an artist. That That's great. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm not asking you to explain yourself for these things or make excuses for it. I think it's, I think it's wonderful that you're doing it. And I'm what I, the, the bigger point I'm trying to make is it, it takes people like you to do this unabashedly to let others know that it's okay to run their brand that way, you know, and well, I, I think it's unfortunate 
but it's great that there are people like you who are doing this. Well, thanks, because actually it makes me very vulnerable to be talking about those subjects because these are like, you know, these are subjects that touch me personally that, you know, that this writing was done by my friend. It's not like, you know, I'm hiring someone to write about that because it's like the hot topic. No, I'm not suggesting that. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm glad you're, you know, you're saying that because I was just telling my team, like, it makes me, it makes me feel very fragile and kind of out there to be tackling those subjects. And I just hope like, you know, it's always scary because, you know, there was a scandal in, in the French uh, press world, media world, where all these dudes that were in like kind of leftist leaning newspapers were, were all like cis straight white dudes were bullying, um, you know, like feminists and like, uh, people of color, um, gay people, um, fat people who are activists uh, against fat phobia. And they were like running, they were like running this huge bully operation. And, you know, even though this has come out and they've all been like nearly all of them have been fired from their jobs, um, which is hard in France because it's not like the U S with its good and bad ways, but it's, it's not like that. Um, you know, I'm always really scared to be talking about feminism in menswear because I'm just like, oh, maybe people are going to bully me or like, and there's, there's this actual one guy who bullies me since like, he's been bullying me online for years. He, it's just like this guy who used to write for like this really, really big French blog Mm -hmm. and, um, doing menswear, this huge menswear community, like 99.9% composed of men. And I guess like a lot of like the straight men and on their forum, it was very like, it was very patriarchal, which is why South Forum is more, I feel like South Forum is people on it who are really into menswear, but also into like current social issues. Mm-hmm. But on that French forum, it was way more closed and conservative and, and like. Well, there, you're just on the wrong style forum because there's definitely a style forum that's absurdly, disgustingly conservative really? and racist. And yeah, I, I don't use style forum. I mean, look, Greg does. And, but like Greg's channel and feed is, is great. But like, you know, there are people that go after um, Derek Guy. You know, yeah, I love Derek. Um, He's the one who has all of the, uh, you know, like the greatest references. Are well, Derek, to you know, and- yeah, he's great. And he crushes people on there. But there is a, a pretty decent amount of people on style form that are, you know, white cisgender dudes who um, are like super conservative and really shitty. You oh, know, really? Who, yeah, who are just like trying to talk about like whether or not something is racist or whether or not, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, I've seen... Uh, I've, it's one of the, they love to go after George Cleverly. Um, or, I know who that is. George Glasgow Jr., who is the son, this third generation son of George Cleverly, George Cleverly Shoemakers uh, mm-hmm. in German Street out of London. And he's just, he's such a clown. You know, I mean. Oh my and, God. Oh yeah. And so they love to just go after him. And then like, he was trying to sue Derek at one point and he, you know, but it's like, it's there. It's, it's. And unfortunately, it's everywhere. But it's um, like in men's in men's clubs and menswear, you know, uh, and menswear spaces, you know, I've seen that kind of content. And in that yeah. French menswear space, there was this kind of content. And this guy who was working for that blog at the time, you know, like, I don't know how I started like seeing I was vocal about feminism and like, 
like when he's on our newsletters, he replies or on my LinkedIn, I have to block him because he replies or he bullies me. And when I tell his former boss and he, his former boss tells me he doesn't have anything to do with us. He just worked for us for like a few months or a year. Um, and he, the guy like who bullies me tells me he's going to sue me because for libel, like that I'm libeling him because I'm saying he's bullying me. So it's really, really toxic. But anyway, like that's a small example, but I'm always scared. You know, there's such a huge conservative backlash. And, you know, here we have an interesting candidate who is extremely um, fascist um, and has a lot of followers. And I'm I'm just really afraid that, you know, the way that we feel comfortable opening about these subjects is going to kind of backfire. It's scary. Yeah. Like when you're a minority, it's scary. Like. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, you're exactly right. Like all of these things are require a constant level of discomfort and unease to just like be the norm. Um, and it definitely, some of this stuff kind of keeps me up at night. But I think, you know, if there's, you know, something I would definitely encourage you on that I think you're doing right is like vulnerability is the new <laughs> is the new like cool thing to do. Like, I mean, it is. And, and so, you know, following your instincts um, and sharing stories that are personal to you, because I mean, like we were saying, as, as this world becomes, you know, as more connected air quote than ever, we're actually so disconnected from the things that are the most important to us, which are like authentic relationships, empathy, um, you know, and, when we're able to do those through clothes, through brands, through storytelling, I think that's where connections are made that are just so deep and, and beautiful and powerful. And I think like, I think that's what Debon does really well is you're a community first and a storyteller first, and you also make good clothes, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and so it's just, it's really exciting to see, and I'm, I mean, I think it's why I've been so glad to have this conversation with you. That where does a lot of like the inspiration for the design come from? Because I watch a ton of Jacques Demy movies, and it looks like half the stuff looks like it was ripped out of Umbrellas of Chabot. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it's something that you know, you, you kind of just, um, you know, from just like uh, being born and growing growing up in Paris, you know, as part of the environment, um, and you know, I just really like uh, old man style. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And old Parisian man style. And so there's a lot of vintage stuff that I, I uh, get from the flea market in the north of Paris in, in Saint-Ouen. Um, and that, you know, we then kind of, you know, resize, reinterpret, you know, work with a different fabric, change some proportions, change some stuff. So there's a lot that comes from that. Um, I guess, yeah, a lot from from French cinema, like new wave cinema, of course. And, you know, maybe not, I, I mean, I don't really know Demi that well, but uh, I know better uh, Romer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess some stuff from there. And I really also like um, artist clothes, like, you know, pictures of artists in their studio and from, you know, the 20th century. And, you know, just this kind of, cool casual way to you know be kind of dressed up but not yeah is what i like and i think it's 
there is something probably French in that or Parisian and this kind of like, I'm just that, but I'm not that inspires me. Yeah. There's some amazing old photos of uh, Jean Prouvé, mm-hmm. which is, I, I don't know what his style was, but it's like, it's, I don't know. I'm going to Google it's, him right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, Jean Prouvé made like the amazing chair and yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, all that stuff, but he's, the all the ones that I had found, and I can send you some other ones because I've saved them. Um, you know, I, he he had like a very high and tight sort of haircut. Yeah. But yeah. um a lot of times the photos that I've seen, his watch is always turned inwards. Oh yeah. And the clothes are really baggy. And I don't know, maybe he served in the military or something, so he had his watch turned inwards. But I mean it's it's just yeah, and a, a lot of like yeah, like knit polos and knit stuff. And like, there's, there's an amazing, I can send you some images later cool, of some to. of the Prouvé stuff. I mean, yeah. And like, to me, he's definitely one of the greatest architects, designers ever. Like, and yeah. so it's just cool there's a, to there's see. There's a picture of him that could totally be from our, our collection. Yeah. Like with a polo, like a knitted polo, a flannel pant and, you know, some fisherman sandals. Yeah, exactly. Just like, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, the old man. I mean, it's just, it's so good. It's yeah, so I really like old man style. And I like dressing in old man style too. Like the old, you know, old man in the street or like the geography professor professor, or all yeah. that. Like I really, I really like that. And then, you know, there's these vintage pieces that we're inspired by. And I just like whatever is, yeah, like kind of old looking. And that's what I love from having the shop now because we opened the shop um in the 11th where we Mm -hmm. have our studio just behind so i'm I'm there right now um it's a pretty large space that i found during covid and we so i get to meet the people you know um buying oh that's great and it's so funny because they're like you know artists and like we had a photographer and like architects and people from the neighborhood and all that and then like suddenly this really old man who's like an old retired uh arts like museum curator comes with his wife who's like um literature professor and they're really they like for some reason they found us and he got a tweed jacket from us and he's this really old man and i thought (laughs) it was so funny that you know it's like 25 to 75 you know have these like young kind of geek you know menswear geek guys coming to get some like flannel shirts that are made like this and that and that and then or the granddad code and then we have this like you know, legit old man <laughs> I mean, getting his tweed jacket from us and then returning to get something else. And it just like makes me so happy. That's great. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, okay. We're starting to wrap up. And so the last thing that we have, these are all very random questions, but on purpose. Okay. So if you were making a YouTube how-to video, mm-hmm. what would the subject be? Something about feminism. Like, okay. Yeah. How to include feminism in your life yeah how how to be a how to be a feminist or something mm, maybe how to like how to include feminism in your life and organization or something like that in your daily life like what are the questions that oh you that's good asking yourself like yeah i think it would made something like educational like that uh what is the last movie you saw that you liked um, or that you hated it could be that i hated <laughs> yeah. um i saw a really Touching movie by Chloe Zhao, um, mm-hmm. who did Nomadland. She did a movie called The Songs My Brothers Taught Me. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say The Eternals, which she also did, which I was like, oh, okay. oh is that the Marvel movie? Yeah, I was oh, just yeah. like, oh, all right, sure, yeah. I'm not, I don't know anything about that. Um, I mean, I don't know that world of like Marvel characters. Like, I see that people are really into it, but I don't really understand it. No, it's, it's a really beautiful movie that oh. I, I remember seeing. Um, what's the last album you heard? Um, New or old, doesn't have to be new. Could you just be whatever you were listening to that you what I was, stayed listening to? Christmas what music, I who knows? I love Oh, oh Holy Night by um, Mariah, Mariah, ah, Mariah Carey. Okay. Um, no, but I, was, I, I love that song. It's actually, I think it's French initially, that it's called Minuit or something. Yeah, um, I don't know. What is the origins of Oh, Holy Night? That's a damn I, good question to ask. I think it's from a French song. I really love it. Like it's super Christian and I'm not, <laughs> but um, I love it. It's from it, a French, it's from a French text called Midnight Christians. Yeah. Um, yeah. From the. On a French language poem by poet yeah. Placide Capou. How do you say that? Placide Capou or Cap Capou? Placide Capou. Yeah. Yeah. 1847. Yeah. Hell yeah. So yeah. I've been listening to Oh Holy Night. Okay. Um. What is a movie or a book that when someone mentions, you feel that they understand you? Oh, um, Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye? Really? Fascinating. So you're, are you, uh, I guess, I guess a big Salinger buff? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, or just, I just Catcher books, in the Rye. But I, re- I, re- I read them all. But yeah, Catcher in the Rye, is, I don't know. Like I read it when I was 13. I think I read it like 60 times. I know like some Whoa. of the arts by heart i mean not anymore but i was really i don't know why this was really formative for me well it's a it's a journey of self-exploration uh, confronting you know tragedy that you didn't know existed <laughs> yeah and it's also like a weirdo and it's funny because he's actually kind of what when you read when you read him um when you read about the character later in life i mean the 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 way that I envisioned him when I was younger is totally different from the way I see him now. Um, of Holden Caulfield or J.D. Salinger? Yeah. Or I guess of maybe Hol- one of the same. Holden Caulfield. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, like, he was my hero when I was younger because he, like, you know, escaped from prep school and, like, was drinking and going to, like, all of these, like, going to a hotel on his own. and Yeah, buying going, a hooker. <laughs> yeah, like, doing all this stuff and, you know, like, and seeing his sister. I really loved uh, his brother. You know, he has this brother who died and he also has his sister he's really close to. And I love all the characters. And I just got, because his brother, his older brother, um, at some point he gets a desk. Like he gets a big, huge desk. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like Holden talks about the desk. And I just got like a huge desk for my house just this weekend from like a, um, you know, yard sale. Okay. And I was so happy. I was thinking about the catcher in the rye. I'm like, oh, I have no one to tell, but this is actually from like this. I'm getting this because of the book. Did you ever uh, read the sort of like leaked three stories of J.D. Salinger? Oh, uh, something that was published after his death or um, the Esme with Love and Squalor? Yeah, there was, let's see, um, The Ocean Full of Bowling Balls. No, I don't think I read that one. Oh, well, I'll send it over Good. to you. I'll order it. Thank you. Maybe yeah. in Florence, we can like do a book club about, about that. Yeah. Um, well, this has been so much fun. I Thank you. Thank you so thank much you for, so for talking. Much. 
Thank you so, so much. I'm so glad. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Have a great day. All right. See ya. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcast. Just tell some folks about us or follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. If you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. Call us or leave us a message and we'll put it in a future episode. Or email us at info at blamopod.com. And if you want to hang out with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where we have tons of extra exclusive episodes, events, and our amazing Slack community. All right, few episodes left for season 10. We'll see you soon.